Happy Friday, one and all. You are knocking on the door to, well, you've got a foot into the weekend yes. anyway. You're like that <laughs> marathon runner ready to break through the tape. And uh, we salute you for making it to the end of the work week. Uh, for those of you that embrace winter, Mount Brighton opens at 3 p.m. today. Excellent. Good for them. We're going to be talking with the folks up at Boyne Mountain. They've uh, increased the number of runs that they have open. And Mount Bohemia, which you may not have heard of, it is an extreme skiing destination in the UP, in the Keweenaw Peninsula. It opens January 17th because they're all natural. Mm-hmm. They can't, it's the, the drop is so extreme. They can't make they can't snow. Make it, you no, can't yeah. pump enough water up there. <laughs> so they just, they rely on mother nature and they're looking at January 17th for those that embrace winter. Uh, this is your weekend. Well, I'm and embracing it. I was outside walking Sasha this morning. It's 22 degrees outside. So I was embracing a little yeah. nippiness this morning. You can't just open the door, Lloyd, and say go and come no, back. She, she won't do that. You know, no. okay. We are looking at a major snowstorm for me. Tuesday and Wednesday. So Sasha yeah. may want to wear a coat. Oh, yes, yeah, she may. But she loves the snow. She'll just play in the snow. And just okay. She's weird like that. But okay. And you're like, girl, but, I got to uh, get to work. Like, come on. Let's stop playing, <laughs> sister. The good news is those are going to watch parties on Monday night for the national championship to cheer on the Wolverines. Uh, it'll probably be decent driving out there. We're, we're not oh, going to yeah. have that nasty stuff just yet. That storm that's going up the East Coast is missing us. Yes. We're going to get just a little. Just a little. Uh-uh. Yeah. yeah. And even though Kim Adams tells me it's still a fuzzy forecast, so we're going to have to take a look at that Sunday and Monday. Uh, meantime, overnight, the Middle East, uh, Israeli defense officials saying that they're entering a new phase in the war against Hamas, especially in northern Gaza, where it's basically going to be just putting out hot spots. They're going to draw down forces. They're going to still wage the war in the southern part of Gaza. But they're also looking ahead to what it looks like after the war is done. There will not be an increase of Jewish and Israeli civilian presence in Gaza. But there will be an occupational force. And why wouldn't there be until there is a much more defined ruling state there? But Hamas will not come back as a ruling entity uh, in Gaza uh, in the meantime. Uh, We also, as we said yesterday, that it uh, it wasn't Israel, it wasn't America that waged that attack that uh, knocked out that um, Hezbollah official. Um, It was ISIS that uh, during the memorial for uh, Qasem Soleimani, uh, there were two bombings, both of them suicide bombings, or they call them a Mm two-martyr effort. Um, It was... ISIS claiming responsibility for that. And we are getting more aggressive when it comes to knocking down some of these terrorists involved in the more than 100 attacks now on U.S. forces in the Middle East. Uh, we launched a drone strike against a man known as Abu Taqwa, uh, one of the leading organizers uh, of uh, this terrorist brigade. That happened in downtown Baghdad. They're upset about it. Our guys are saying, it was self-defense. Defense. Yeah. Meantime, Americans kind of divided over Israel. They say 41% say, you know, we're doing the right amount of support for them. 39% though say we're not doing enough. Only one in five say we're doing too much. And uh, interesting story out the number of hate crimes has increased nationwide more than 11%. But in the major cities... There is more anti-Muslim. The increases are larger against Muslims than actually against Jewish Americans, even though that is still a horrifying increase as well. And, Lloyd, we're seeing more hate directed at our fine law enforcement office. Yeah, journalist George Hunter in the Detroit News reporting that, according to stats, Michigan cops are being assaulted at unprecedented levels, even though they're making fewer arrests than they have in decades. There were 
About 1,751 officers assaulted in Michigan in 2022. That's the highest number in the Michigan State Police online database that goes back to 1997. Arrests for obstructing police in Michigan were also at an all-time high in 2022. That's the latest year for which figures are available. Overall, arrests statewide dropped to the lowest level in more than 50 years in 2022, meaning more cops were assaulted or obstructed during fewer interactions with residents. Uh, state police will release their crime data in 2023, uh, for 2023 in the fall of this year, but they say much of the blame on the increased aggression on encounters with mentally ill people and the defunded police right. sentiments as well with the George Floyd murder. So, um, it, not only though police though, uh, guy, it's also teachers. Right. Mm-hmm. And healthcare and, and healthcare workers as well. Yeah. Are being assaulted more. Professions you wouldn't think would be on the quote unquote firing line right? absolutely and speaking of teachers uh, uh, just oh. another sad event this time in iowa on the first day of classes following winter break a 17 year old student at perry high school in iowa fatally shot a sixth grader and wounded four other students and a school administrator before killing himself police responded to an active shooter around 737 at this high school in Perry, it's a city about 7,800 people, 30 miles northwest of Des Moines. The shooter was armed with a pump-action shotgun and a small-caliber handgun. Police also found this improvised explosive device that did not go off. The shooter identified as Dylan Butler. Uh, evidence indicates he acted alone. He also had, which is, this happens every time, he's had social media posts. Uh, uh, some say he was bullied and access to a gun, and this happened. Uh, the shooting happened before school started, but breakfast events were happening, and a sixth grader is now dead. Yeah. And this makes me so angry. This only happens here, and it happens all the time. This is the 80th school shooting this year. Yeah, yeah. Did, did were, I mean, in those social media posts, were there things that could have been called red flags? This is so preliminary, but yes, you know, like friends are coming out and saying, "Oh, yes, he was bullied," but they're just but investigating. Just being bullied. Now. We're all bullied for crying out loud, but we don't reach that level. And you know, as we look at trying to address this through these red flag laws, which may or may not be effective, depending on whether people actually make use of them, it's always you know, at what level does it rise to? Where's the trigger for initiating a red flag action? Right, exactly. Like that? And I just, you know, this happens in this country. Yeah. So what are we doing about it? Nothing. It certainly feels that way, or at least there's this feeling of helplessness. This a little sixth grader just went to school. Yeah. Yeah. It's not okay. It's not. Um, Interesting story. A new trove of Jeffrey Epstein documents dropping. Really, no big bombshells there, except a report, according to his uh, Jeffrey Epstein's accuser, that Bill Clinton intervened with Vanity Fair and spiked a story on Jeffrey Epstein and his sex trafficking. Now, Graydon Carter, who was the all-knowing, all-seeing editor of Vanity Fair, says, absolutely not. There's no credence to that story at all, which which is interesting. Uh, but apparently she had talked to Vanity Fair, and she got pushed back and was told it was Bill Clinton who intervened. So covering up, allegedly, for that meantime, the House Democrats uh, doing what they called an investigation, saying that Trump businesses... Trump International Hotel in Washington, other Trump real estate mm-hmm. entities took in nearly $8 million while he was president. And they say this, you know, the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, mm-hmm. this brings that into the question. Let me say just one thing for perspective here. Whether it was China, whoever it was that was staying at Trump hotels, they got something and we know what they got in return for their money. 
right? It was a transaction. We don't know that they got any favoritism, but they got a place to stay. We can't say that about Hunter Biden. There was no visible. We seen where is the value in sending China sending millions or Ukraine sending millions to Hunter Biden? Um, and, and I'm not making an equivalency here, but we knew when we elected a billionaire president with a far-flung real estate empire, there was going to be some some thorny things there. But for House Democrats to say that, well, you know, look at this, and they can't refute this, um, it looks to me like they're trying to deflect and distract as more questions are raised about Hunter. Just saying, we they actually got something in return in that transaction. We can't any see anything when it comes to Hunter. Oh, Michigan Small Business uh, sitting down with our friends at Bridge, Michigan, and asking the legislature, please slow your roll in 2024. We need stability. We need certainty. We need predictability. Focus on the stuff that Governor Whitmer and her growth council put out there, mm-hmm. improving K-12 through education. But let's not mess with overtime. Let's not mess with family leave right now. Please don't throw any more changes at us because we're already having trouble keeping up. Um, and uh, that came from Brian Kelly at the Small Business Association of Michigan. Uh, when we come back, you're going to meet an amazing young man who got the trip of a lifetime. Uh, it's a story that will make you smile and that will get your Friday off on the right foot. That's next on JR Morning for your Friday. Now, Every time I talk to my folks at CNC Heating and, uh, excuse me, I got, I, I've got the wrong folks here. Uh, we know that uh, we've got some mighty cold weather. Sasha told us that this morning when she went out for her walk with Lloyd. It's here to stay. And lower temperatures, we know, can mean higher bills for you. But staying comfortable this winter doesn't have to drive up your energy usage if you take some simple steps to save on energy. Like keeping furniture, carpeting, curtains from blocking heat registers. You don't want to heat the furniture. You want to heat the air. So clear those heat registers and air return ducts. And then clean or replace your furnace filters often. It's amazing how much that can reduce your efficiency. Plus, it will make you healthier to get all those nasties out of the fur- uh, out of the filters. Visit ConsumersEnergy.com slash cold weather. That's ConsumersEnergy.com slash cold weather for more tips to save energy and money this season. Well, we know there was a whole lot of hooting and hollering in Pasadena when the Michigan Wolverines finally shut down that last really bad quarterback draw play from the Alabama Crimson Tide. They stuffed them. (laughs) No one was cheering louder than the next gentleman that we're about to meet. Uh, (laughs) Noah Wells is a 17-year-old from Milford. Uh, he has a an extremely rare genetic disorder called June syndrome, and thanks to a a program called Team Impact, uh, he is a member of the University of Michigan Wolverines football team, and uh, we are so excited to have him. Noah, good morning. Good morning to you too. And we're joined by his parents, uh, Trisha and Josh, as well. Delighted to have you here. So, first of all, just give me a sense of I. I I've been to Pasadena. I've been to the Rose Bowl. Tell me about the moment when you first walked into that hallowed stadium. It's a great stadium. It's uh, a lot like Michigan Stadium. It's a big bowl, uh, a little bit smaller, but but the view is just incredible. It's got the mountains in the background, and, uh, you know, the grass is, uh, is so exquisite. It looks, you know, like, like a golf course putting green. 
Uh, I've done multiple stories on Team Impact. Before we get to the game, can you just talk about the experience of signing with the University of Michigan and how they've sort of embraced you and brought you into the fold for a couple years now? It's it's just really great to be able to uh, interact with the guys and meet them and and see how the uh, the football program operates behind the the curtains. Yeah, the the team has embraced us and and really invited us in. Uh, we get to go to practices. We've invited some guys over. They come over for dinner and they play video games with oh, us. Wow. And uh, you know, we get to stay on the sidelines and they say hi. And you know, we were out in Pasadena and they were saying. Hey, hey, go blue! Our lucky charm is here. So um, it's been a beautiful two years. Yeah, it been, great- you have been a lucky charm because you, since you've joined the team, they've made the the CFB playoffs for two years in a row. You you are the one. <laughs> yeah, we've only lost one game. We told we told uh, Jim that Jim Harbaugh. We told him that, but Noah needs another year. Red shirt him. Put him in there for another year. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 you know what? Let's not tell Columbus, okay, <laughs> about our secret weapon. That's right. Um, when 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 you look at this, um, Trisha, how important is this? Uh, is, is you just? I mean, we all face daily challenges. Sometimes those those walls are a little bit higher for for some of us than others. Just the importance of having this as a welcome distraction and form of support. It for sure is. You know, he's been through so much at the hospital and so many surgeries. And so this is just great to have something that he can look forward to and, you know, really get excited to see the guys and go to the practices and interact with them. And he's been a football fan for years. So to be able to actually be part of the program has been a wonderful experience. All right, so Noah, let's talk about the game. Were you nervous in the third quarter, and what do you think the turning point was in that fourth? I was very, very, very nervous. Once we went down uh, twenty to thirteen, it was kind of like, oh, here we go again. We're gonna, we're gonna throw away the game at an important moment. But the real turning point was that last drive where we scored a touchdown is to tie it up, and then it was all Michigan from there out. Was it your call to go for it on fourth, fourth down? <laughs> I knew we, I knew we had to, but uh, Sharon Moore is a great play caller, so I'll defer to him on that one. <laughs> is there? I mean, you know, in these parts, we always ask, "Who's your tiger? Uh, who's your Wolverine?" I know it's probably hard to pick favorites, because you've spent a lot of time with some quality time with the guys. But is there one guy that stands out, either on the field or off? They're all just incredible people and players, and uh, we love them all. Uh, to mom and dad, how did you get in touch with Team Impact? Again, Team Impact, this wonderful organization that partners um, kids with challenges with collegiate teams, and they actually become a part of the team. I did one with Oakland University. This kid signed with the soccer team. So tell me how you got in touch with Team Impact, or they got in touch with you. Yeah, so, you know, we've been at Mott for so many years. I am... Um, you know, I volunteer there sometimes doing like surveys or um, I've done some parenting groups and things like that. So we get emails periodically about opportunities like this. And they sent me an email and said, hey, you know, you should fill out the paperwork and sign up for it and, and see what you get. So I did that and I filled out the paperwork and Team Impact contacted me and then did like probably a 45 minute intake interview. And I just said, you know, you would make his life. 
if you matched him with Michigan football because he's such a big fan. And they said, I don't know, it's such a big program. We don't know. And about nine months later, here we are, you know, we were matched with Michigan football and it was a great day. Yeah, what a dream come true. And I think what warms my heart is when I've done the stories, oftentimes the players and coaches go above and beyond what they're sort of required to with this partnership. They become friends. They text. They FaceTime. Yes. So, you know, he's had some surgeries, you know, during the last couple of years. And um, some of the core players that we really meet with, um, they sent videos and and prayers and things like that to him prior to surgery and, and then after surgery as well. So, it really is a partnership and honestly a friendship. So when it's you, been a great You're very modest when you say he's had some surgeries. Help raise awareness about June syndrome for those of us that are unfamiliar with it. Um, June syndrome is a genetic disorder where your chest cavity is too small for your body, essentially. Um, so the, the therapy is very rare. Uh, the therapy is potentially to, or not potentially, but to um, cut the ribs and actually expand the chest and give him room to breathe essentially as he grows. Um, they use these metal rods to kind of hold his ribs out. It's it's pretty intense surgeries and uh, uh, it's given him room to breathe. He's probably 50, 60% of what a normal 17 year old would have. Um, but he, you know, can walk in and, and do things without oxygen on his own. And so some surgeries have, have been successful as that as far yeah. as that goes. How do you, you look for those small blessings, but I mean, just reading this, Noah, you're a pretty inspirational guy to us. Um, how do you stay on the positive side and and, and uh, just keep moving forward? Well, I just think of myself as the same as everybody else. I just had some things I got to go through and uh, just uh, keep moving forward. It's That's great. wonderful. It's great to have that type of... Uh, you know that spirit and uh, Noah Houston, the the national championship. What's going to happen? Well, I don't really care about the score, but Michigan's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom line. Well Bottom said. Line. <laughs> well said. Um, and, I, and I guess I got to ask you: Every other seventeen-year-old I know is uh, looking at schools right now. Have you uh, have you start, you know put that common app into University of Michigan? Uh, not yet. I'll be a senior next year, so I'll be applying next year. Definitely, Michigan is number one on the list. Oh, yeah. All right. That's great. All right. And where are you watching on Monday? Hopefully from the stands. We're oh, gonna be there. you are? Really? Oh, man. We're going to make it out there. Through Team Impact? Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. What a great organization. What an experience. Man. You you know what? I think they're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. They put us. They gave us a chance to go out with, we were in the team hotel out in California as well. And um, we went to practices out in California with the kids and uh, what a, what a great experience. Team impact is an amazing organization. Hooks up kids that uh, have health issues and are just not going to be able to play sports. So yeah. What I, an amazing experience. I knew the Wolverines were going to win. Now I know. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, 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 for sure. I'm, I'm feeling Noah's better. There. I'm feeling a lot better now. <laughs> well, <laughs> safe travels to Houston. Uh, good luck. I, I know that you've got more surgeries facing you, but uh, we want to see you wrapped in maize and blue as an official member of the student body yes. in two years, okay? That'd be great. I would like that as well. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the game Monday night, and we can't wait to hear about it when uh, when you get back and celebrating, hopefully, a national championship. Do take care. Thank you Thank so you. much. You All right. Well. And Trisha and Josh, great job.
Well, there's kind of a big game coming up on Monday for all the marbles, the national championship. We thought who better to give us some perspective on the Washington Huskies than the voice of the Huskies, Tony Castricone. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I guess first question, you guys have a very able-bodied quarterback in Michael Penix Jr. Does everything run through him? Yeah, I'd have to say, I mean, one of the big things that has emerged for Washington over the years or over, over the course of this year, rather has been their ability to run the football, but 100% it's, it's um, just how dynamic and explosive the passing game can be, which I think makes this a really compelling matchup. You know, Michigan in, in so many different metrics is the number one defense in the country and, and Washington is, is number one or near the top in almost every offensive statistical category. And, and it's Penix's ability um, to, to kind of lead the team, to give them confidence, and then also just put the ball with such precision downfield uh, to a bevy of different playmakers um, where only the Husky wide receiver has a chance at getting it. He does that at such a high percentage rate that uh, it's been really fun to watch. And, and obviously we're all biased, but we think he should have won the Heisman Trophy. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that I do, too. Uh, I, I think that he's certainly the best quarterback that Michigan has seen all year. Uh, but I also think this is the best defense that your guys will see all year, especially coming off the performance against Alabama with, what, a half dozen, seven sacks, something like that. How do you think, Michael Penix Jr., if, if we see that kind of pass rush, how, how will he withstand that? Yeah, I think that's what makes this such a compelling matchup is it's the contrasting styles, right? I think, you know, um, Washington has faced really good defenses. I think Oregon twice, um, you know, has uh, some of those huge bodies up front and the ability to get after the passer. And I think Texas presented the same challenge in the semifinal. But, you know, Michigan, again, statistically is the best at that, right? So um, what, what I thought was really impressive about Penix and his performance in the in the Sugar Bowl was not just the 430 yards and the two touchdowns and the no interceptions. It was as the pocket and as the pressure would come and as the pocket would get all sort of, you know, uh, mangled, he would find that little spot where he could sneak into it, reset his feet, and then fire. And his ability, I think even particularly if you, if you see – uh, one play where he throws a long bomb up the left sideline to Michigan State transfer Jeremy Bernard. Uh, he's got pressure in his face, and he's just flicking the wrist as he spins around and um, throws that just on a on a dot, you know, 30, 35 yards down the field. So it's been his ability to do that and do it in the biggest moments time and time again that I think gives Washington a lot of confidence in the offense. Let's talk about discipline. I believe Michigan is the most disciplined, least penalized team, and Washington is the second most. Could that <laughs> be a problem? You know, uh, what's so funny about you asking that is I think the, the, the wisdom would say, yeah, absolutely. And yet, uh, as I've just followed this over years and years, there are very often you will find really highly penalized teams that end up really good. Um, I think when we played in the Rose Bowl five years ago against Ohio State, they were the third most penalized team in the country. I think some of that has to just do with aggressiveness. Um, and now if you're committing really foolish personal foul penalties and that sort of stuff, that, that I think is discipline. If you're jumping too much with false starts, that's discipline. I think if you're being really aggressive, 
um, and and um, those sort of things, like maybe a pass interference that's that's probably a better option than giving up a long bomb, those sort of things. I think the kind of penalties that really have hurt Washington this year are just the drive extending ones. Um, when a really dynamic offense is in a third and five situation and the Huskies kind of just, they're a little too eager to get after the quarterback and they, they jump across the line of scrimmage offsides, just trying to time that cadence out just right. And, and the Huskies have two of the best edge rushers in the country in Zion Tupula Fatui and all American Braylon Trice. Those guys both jump kind of a lot um, in, in, in their, in their effort to try to time out the snap just right. So they will take some chances and I think they're, they're okay with, with making some of the mistakes that are calculated risks or aggressive in nature. So those are the kind of things that um, have, have usually been the penalties, but yeah, they really can't afford any mistakes. Uh, neither team can afford any mistakes um, to win a national championship that, that aren't absolutely necessary. So for those of us that were too busy celebrating to actually watch the Sugar Bowl um, and didn't get a chance to key in on the Huskies' performance, talk to me about your receiving, your receivers, and who, who uh, Wolverine fans should be watching for, who you think your most dangerous man is beyond Michael Penix. And well, the, I, you, they have a good uh, type guy. Yeah, the, they, they really have so many options, and I think that's what makes the offense so dynamic. Rome Odunze is number one, and I think that he is – uh, probably the best receiver in the nation. Michigan fans might not hate to hear that. We, we think he should have won the Bolitnikoff over Ohio State's Marvin Harrison Jr. Um, he just rises to the occasion time and time again. He is extremely strong and fast, a lethal combination, and he wins an extraordinarily high percentage of contested catches. So number one is an All-American, and, and we absolutely love that guy. A couple of Jalens are guys you're going to want to keep an eye on. Number two, Jalen Polk. Number 11, Jalen McMillan. McMillan has spent much of the year injured but is now fully healthy, and all three of those guys are explosive. Number four, Jeremy Bernard is a Michigan State transfer who has provided depth. Number zero, Giles Jackson is a Michigan transfer who also is a speedy little slot receiver, and he's been injured much of the year as well, but he's now healthy and ready to contribute. And then multiple sixth-year tight ends in Devin Culp and Jack Westover. Um, there's a lot of options in this offense. So what Michigan name is giving the Washington preparation some difficulty? You know, you know I, I'm getting ready to talk to the, the coaches and players for the first time this week here momentarily. But to me, it's Blake Corum. I mean, just if you look back to that game in 2021 when Washington played in the big house, I don't think they, they threw for more than 50 yards. I mean, it was just running, pounding the ball time and time again, 344 on the ground, if I remember right. And, um, well, you know, a lot of these guys were on that defense, right, and, and took that really personally. And Blake Corum dominated the game, had the explosive 67-yard touchdown run. So that's who we remember. That's the only skilled position player in college football scored in every game this season. He is, to me, if they find a way to just – you know, just limit him, just make it kind of tough for him on first and second down and put Michigan in third and long, then they're going to have a lot better chance. But if Blake Corum is able to do whatever he wants be behind that big physical offensive line, that, that, that could be a really frustrating day for Washington. 
Um, well, I, I think it's going to be an interesting matchup. Number one versus number two, does it get any better for the national championship? No, no, that's about as good as it gets, right? <laughs> and I think for Washington, um, you know, I think the, what's really cool is these are two proud programs with a ton of tradition and history. Um, and, and just really, there's so many overlapping similarities, you know, uh, great academic schools, uh, programs that have been winning for a hundred years and, and programs that have crossed paths a lot in, in huge Rose Bowls over the years. You know, last time we won a national championship was in 1991 and that was Washington beating Michigan to, to put the exclamation point on a 12 and 0 season. And so I just think this is a classic Rose Bowl type of matchup, right? Um, and it's for absolutely everything. And what more could you want if you're a fan of either program? And for if, if, and finally, Tony, when when you look at the intangibles, you know, with Michigan, we've been watching all season as this Michigan versus everybody mm. kind of narrative has developed with with the suspensions and things like that. Um, what's going on on the Washington side? This is going to be, you know, what intangibles might be working to their advantage. It's going to be your entry into the Big Ten, uh, for a lot of Big Ten viewers and fans. Also, it's it's going to be uh, your swan song in in that conference. Yeah, I think, you know, from a Washington perspective, it started out as the slogan in the preseason, uh, us versus us. I mean, they really just believe if they don't beat themselves, if they put the hard work in and if they maximize their own potential, that potential, that possibility is a national championship. And so they're trying to block out all the other outside noise and they really don't have a whole lot of controversy around the program. I mean, I think if if anything, there's a big chip on the shoulder because they know and they see what they've been all year. And yet they're continually doubted by the national media. They are continually bet against by folks who have a financial stake in Las Vegas. They just don't seem to get the respect across the country. And, and we've said it. And, and I think we've seen it. Like, I mean, if that logo on the side of the helmet was, you know, um, uh, a USC Trojan or, a, you know, a Alabama Crimson Tide or whatever, like they might have a Heisman winner. They might yeah. be favorite in this game. They just have not gotten the respect. So I think that's what Washington is, is kind of embraced that as their identity. They are underdogs and uh, they're, they're happy playing that role and uh, playing with house money as they hope to shock the world. I think this is going to be a fantastic matchup over under 55 and a half. The Wolverines going for their first title since 1997. Tony Castricone, thank you so much for your insight. Yeah, thank you for having me. And we should point out, Tony's a Columbus guy and also has called some games uh, for Michigan. Also uh, was uh, on with uh, Frank Beckman over the years. Uh, good guy. Time for Automotive Views, brought to you by Bridgestone. Getting people down the road matters, but getting generations down them, that's what really matters. Bridgestone, visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. CES is next week in Las Vegas, and it's going to be a decidedly less Detroit-flavored event than in recent years. None of the Detroit Three are participating. It's odd that the trade show that dominates early January and effectively forced Detroit to find another time to hold its auto show won't have any of our local automakers on hand. Stellantis was planning on being at CES, but then it pulled out last fall during the UAW strike. At the time, it also bailed on SEMA and the Los Angeles Auto Show. 
Now in 2024, it's looking at events on a case-by-case basis and choosing to skip Chicago, Toronto, and North Texas shows or leave them to dealers to support. It is the dealers who benefit most directly from the boost in consumer interest and attention that follows an auto show. So for now, more of them are going to have to pay for it. With this week's Automotive View, I'm Jamie Butters, host of the Daily Drive podcast and executive editor of Automotive News. So remember back in November of uh, 20, Michigan voters said, you know, we don't want about a bunch of smoke filled room, partisan, cigar chomping politicos choosing our district boundaries. We want to do it ourselves. We want to try to do it better. We, we think we can find a better way. And by a, an overwhelming margin, Michigan voters said yes, that, that, that having partisans who, by virtue of their majority, draw and perhaps gerrymander the future, uh, it just isn't the way to go. Well, now we've got a mess because the federal court has said that they diluted uh, racial representation in the new maps in at least 13 districts. Uh, they're under an order to redraw them. Yesterday, they, the redistricting commission filled three vacancies, so they got that done, and then basically voted to kick the can down the road by appealing the lower court ruling. So instead of fixing it, they're going to uh, petition the U.S. Supreme Court. Is it time to say that maybe this isn't working, or is it too early to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Well, there's an election this year. Mm -hmm. So what happens there? Well, I mean, we could put it back on the ballot and ask folks if they decide that this is the best way to do it. Um, it was interesting. I mean, they, they called the meeting yesterday with a five, five-hour notice. Um, the head of the, com- the commission says that the Open Meetings Act is a legislative control, that it doesn't apply to the redistricting commission under normal conditions. You went out 18 hours. So the, the, there's this sense of a lack of transparency. They did not discuss with their lawyers in an open forum why an appeal was justified or why that's a better course than fixing the maps that have already been drawn and are flawed, according to the lower court. None of that was done in a, in a transparent manner. They held yeah. those sessions privately. And that's the problem. The whole thing was to kind of bring this out into the open. And it just doesn't feel like that. So they just feel that uh, if they kick the can down the road, they can just hold on, wait to the Supreme Court to to do something. If or they, not. Or not, if yeah. they decide not to take it, you know, and then they could just hold on as long as they have to without having to fix it when they could just fix it. This is a mess. Yeah. Rebecca Zatella is, has really been, I think, one of the brighter lights on that commission. Uh, we've talked to her a number of times on, on my old afternoon show, and uh, she didn't show yesterday. Very interesting. And she has been on record as being against an appeal. Um, but uh, they, they, they did have a motion for a pay raise at the end of the meeting, according to Beth LeBlanc's <laughs> reporting. So, they, gosh, it was, it was good that you were ready to take action on that, but not do your job. No, yeah. I what was it, paid, Monica Connors, Connors? Do your job. That's right. Do your job. <laughs> I think maybe there are people out there who don't understand the whole what happened guy. There was GOP drawn maps to start with. Right. And then what happened? Well, one of the things they did was they said, let's pack as many minority people into a district as we can, make them massively majority minority districts. Mm -hmm. So you will be guaranteed black representation out of that district, but we will have 
fewer Democrats. At least that was the allegation. There was a huge investigation. It certainly unveiled a, a lot of disingenuousness on the part of the people that were drawing the boundaries once you read their emails. So after that, there was a push on to say, hey, there's got to be a better way. And maybe if we appoint this commission where we've got so many declared Democrats, so many declared Republicans right. of equal number. Mm-hmm. And then and they pulled those people from all over because I told you I got a letter asking me to be in it just through the mail. Yeah. Right. As a voter of Michigan. Say, mm-hmm. by, one of the, by the way, one of the guys that was selected to replace the vacancy on the commission said they didn't ask me if I wanted to be chosen for this. It was done by a computer kind of at random. And um, he said, I don't know. <laughs> oh, see, mine was a question. Do you want to do this? Right. Would you Would you like yes. to apply? Well, he did apply, but that was nearly two years ago. Oh, now. and then they just put him on. And just out of the blue, he said, well, wait, I've been appointed. I, I've got some things I got to <laughs> move around here. Um, but interesting. So they're going to, we've got an appearance, a federal court appearance today in Kalamazoo in the, in the federal court there. And uh, they're going to hear dueling plans from plaintiffs and defendants over how the redraw should happen. How does the appeal, though, affect the hearing today? Will it affect it in some type of way? Apparently not, because I don't think they got to stay on this proceeding. Okay, Um, you know, and and the Supreme Court may or may not take it up. They may may or may not get back to you for a while, (laughs) you know. Today's the day that Colorado was supposed to, uh, by the way, print, print the their book. ballots. Yeah. And there's a question about whether or not Trump's name will be on them. All kinds of things happening. Bless you. <laughs> and we wish you a good morning on this Friday morning, December 5th, 2024. Uh, as we said earlier, this was the day that the we, we got to hear from the Supreme Court about what's going to happen in Colorado. And now we see Massachusetts, Illinois, Maine, these other states that are lining up to try to block Trump from getting out of the ballot. Um, I, I think that that is not the way to keep the former president from entering office. I think you let the voters decide. But at the same time, we've got some U.S. senators putting their thumb on the scale when it comes to <clears throat> whether or not the UAW organizes the transplants, the Tesla plants, the Hondas, the Hyundais. Um, Debbie Stabenow, Senator Gary Peters, amongst 33 Democratic senators that sent a letter to these non-unionized automakers, um, I don't know if you would classify this as a threat, but it was urging them to basically uh, stay neutral. Well, isn't that like asking them to, to to lie down, to not plead their case to workers about not unionizing? What's fair in that? Um, it's, I mean, it's up to them how they run their exactly. company. Exactly. Exactly. And what we're and it's not so much about wages and benefits, even though that's part of it, but it's about these inflexible work rules that don't allow them to manage their affairs in a more efficient manager or in their best interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, when a bunch of U.S. senators fire that shot across the bow, does that classify as a is a threat that, you know, we can we can mess with regulations. We can mess with legislation that may not be so friendly to you. If we think that you're not being fair, yeah, you can take uh, that a lot of different ways from the, you know, this this pro-union mm-hmm. uh, party. Uh, they said this, quote, your commitment to neutrality would ensure that management does not pressure workers into voting against unionization or delaying the election progress uh, process. OK, there are already NLRB rules uh, that uh, will will control that. There is a process for mm-hmm. that. And already the UAW and I think down in Chattanooga with VW has said that uh, they have violated 
uh, NLRB rules and that mm-hmm. there was a, already a complaint filed. So why not just let the process take it? Just let course, it play out, yes. Uh, and, unless you want to get into some political virtue signaling here and, uh, again, as you continue to assiduously court the, the, the labor vote. But an interesting development there after we talked with Merrick Masters yesterday, and you can find that podcast at WJR.com, where he says, uh, listen, they're, they're trying to buck history here. The UAW needs a totally different approach. And we asked him about whether the Biden administration would put its thumb on the scale. We are not going to be uh, crossing the Howe Bridge as soon as we thought we might. No, the opening of the Gordie Howe International Bridge has been delayed nearly a year. Now, according to the Windsor-Detroit Bridge Authority, construction on the bridge is set to be completed for September 2025 with the first vehicles expected to travel across the bridge in the fall of 2025. Now, originally, the more than $4 billion bridge was set to be completed later this year, but officials say uh, the project experienced unprecedented disruptions from the COVID-19 pandemic, especially for the bridge because of different restrictions in the U.S. and Canada. The Windsor-Detroit Bridge Authority also said it budgeted for one year for a one-year expansion on the Gordie Howe International Bridge Community Benefits Plan. Construction crews did make significant progress in 2022 and 2023, which includes bridge and road deck construction, stay cable installation, and port of entry facilities. This year, crews are expected to connect the bridge deck over the Detroit River and install the last of the 216 stay cables, plus complete the port of entry agency buildings and concrete on the I-75 ramps. Once the project is complete, Guy, the team will finalize operating processes and test the bridge to fully prepare for traffic crossings in the fall of 2025. Meantime, there's not a lot of people crossing bridges or crossing borders to come into Michigan. U-Haul has released its annual report on kind of the migration within the borders of the uh, U.S. Michigan near last, according to the 2023 numbers from U-Haul, we're number 46th as a growth state. But that's an improvement from 2022 when we were 48. That's great. <laughs> you know, yeah. And here's and, and, and not necessarily unrelated story in M Live. Uh, the Michigan Housing Development Authority says we are nearly 200,000 housing units short of what we need to satisfy the demand for housing. Why prices are going up, why it's harder to find homes, why inventory is so low, why young people are having a hard time. Finding that starter home, we're 200,000 units short in the wow. state. And Interesting. So even if they do come here, they're going to have a harder time mm-hmm. and pay more to finding a home. Meantime, is we're going to root for the Lions and the Wolverines uh, over the next three days. There's a guy in Bloomfield Township. I- I'm kind of rooting for him, too. Do you guys know about these survivor pools, at least in the NFL? You pick one team throughout each week, but you can't yeah. pick them twice. So there's a lot of luck involved. You look at the spread. You see who you think might win. Well, this guy's name is Wade Fink, and he is picked perfectly throughout the entire season. Wow. And he entered the survivor pool with Hollywood Casino Greektown. He's already won it, and his payday is $40,000-ish. But there's this extra provision. If he's right throughout the entire season undefeated, he gets an extra payday of a half a million bucks, and he's one win away from doing that. So he can pick up any of the NFL games that are going to be ongoing uh, this week. But it has to be a team he hasn't chosen yet. Ah, okay. which limits so it a lot. He's thinking Tampa Bay Buccaneers to beat the Carolina Panthers. That's so according he's to He's riding Tony Baker Paul Mayfield to the finish Bay. line. Mm-hmm. Or the Steelers against the Ravens, because both those teams have playoff implications. He thinks they're going to play really hard. But and, he hasn't made he hasn't his picked, choice yet. He hasn't Lamar, picked any of them during the season? He has not picked 
either of those teams yet. And Lamar Jackson's sitting out that Ravens game. Lamar Jackson is sitting out the Ravens game. We don't know about Baker Mayfield yet. He hasn't practiced. So this guy has a huge payout coming wow. if he could pick one more correct game. Now, in Tony Paul's article in the Detroit News, this guy seems to be a bit of an expert. He gambles a lot. He's done a lot of things with different – he plays poker. He's been in a survivor pool in Vegas and stuff. So he seems really good at what he does. But, you know, if you want the local guy to win – one more for him. There you go. Shouldn't he just kind of check in with us? I, I think he'd be a good guest for your Monday night show. Wade uh, Fink, call in, please. Yeah. <laughs> or better yet, uh, just just secretly slip us a note as to who you're putting your money down. Yeah, and let's yeah. do what he does. <laughs> there now, you go. He says he's going to make a hedge bet. So in case okay. he doesn't get this, he'll still. Get, yeah. Yeah. All righty. Good luck, Wade. Unbelievable. Uh, Time for WJR's Business Beat, brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world. Here's Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation, to spotlight the tech and startup community on WJR. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy. The Internet is a busy place, as we all know, and every year it becomes an exponentially busier place as we live out our lives with this online hub, now a central part of our lives, ranging from our personal activities and interests to the way we conduct business. Domo.com, that's D-O-M-O.com, has been compiling data on what goes on every minute of every day on the Internet for the past decade. And this morning on the Business Beat, we've got some highlights to share from this data that shows just how broad and deep Internet activity is every day. For starters, let's highlight where much of the Internet activity starts when we go online. And, of course, that happens on Google. So much so that Domo.com data indicates 6.3 million searches happen every minute of every day on Google. How about Amazon? Another behemoth, of course. Well, get this. $455,000 is spent on Amazon every minute of every day online. Looking for a vacation rental? Better get busy. 747 stays are booked every minute on Airbnb. How about a new job? Well, that's a crowded space also. 6,000 resumes are posted on LinkedIn every minute. All of this while DoorDash diners spend about $122,000 every minute. And then there's this. 69,400 Taylor Swift songs are now streamed each and every minute of every day on average. And the list goes on and on, of course. Not that any of us needed to be reminded that the Internet's a busy place. But to hear the actual data is nothing short of mind-blowing. And it's an opportunity for us when taking a deeper look, for those of us who are business owners, to get inspired or to get informed about just how the Internet is being used by both consumers and businesses these days. Want to learn more? Go to domo.com to dive deeper into the data. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, and that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. Well, we may no longer have a January auto show, but that doesn't mean that the North American Car and Truck of the Year and also Utility of the Year awards uh, don't go forward in this uh, frigid month. And they are arguably the much more objective awards in the automotive universe. We know Mortar Trend, Car and Driver, they've got theirs, but they also accept advertising, which Mm -hmm. makes it a little bit, I don't know. Uh, but this year, Natoys were announced, and um, it uh, was good news on the truck front for the uh, for the American automakers with the Ford Super Duty uh, catching truck of the year. 
Uh, let's talk to one of my favorite jurors who uh, was one of those that was making the call on these uh, awards that were announced yesterday at M1 Concourse. Henry Payne, automotive uh, columnist for the Detroit News. Henry, good morning and welcome to JR Morning. Hey, Guy. Good to be with you. So just in general, as you looked at the the universe of nominees this year, I, I know the goal is to basically say who elevated the bar the most in the automotive market. As you look at it overall, what distinguished this year's group of nominees? Yeah, it's really a, it's an interesting time, Guy, in the industry because you get this uh, historical historic transition that the industry is going through toward uh, toward electrics so you had a mix of uh of uh new electrics that aren't quite there yet uh, competing against uh, pretty established brands so uh i thought i thought the most interesting categories were car where you had two icons yeah. uh, honda accord and toyota prius going at each other the prius won that battle and then you had suvs uh, which were all electric. All the nominees were electric. Uh, uh, Kia EV9, um, the uh, uh, Hyundai Kona, and and the uh, Genesis G70. And none of these are really mass market vehicles yet, the way that the Accord and the Prius are. So the the SUV category, I thought, was uh, not as relevant to customers yet, just because those are electrics are still niche vehicles. The, and I should say the um, the Kia EV9 won uh, in that SUV category. Well, let me tell you, um, uh, Henry, that, that Kia uh, EV9, it, it really looks good. I was looking at it uh, yesterday when I, you know, when they were talking about it on television, and it, it's, a, it's a good look. I'm, I'm wondering how security will be, because as you know, they, they talk about Kias are easy to, to steal. And, you know, has security been improved in, in this? I know this is an electric car, but has it been improved? Yeah, I mean, every 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 car in this electronic age has its challenges in terms of getting uh, stolen. I think Hyundai's in particular uh, have have been uh, rife with that problem. And, and those, that's been irrelevant, whether it's an EV or whether it's a... Uh, internal combustion car, but I, I just I, I, I just took the Kia EV9 for a road trip, mm-hmm. for example, to uh, Gaylord and back as an overnight 500 mile trip. I had to stop five times in, in 30 degree weather in order to recharge. I mean, charging. You are real, kidding me? What? Yeah, I mean, yeah, charging really saps uh, battery range. So the EV9 is. Uh, is uh, uh, claims to have 270 miles of range. In truth, I was just getting about 55% of that. So in a three-row family SUV, that's a real issue for families. You know, everybody in the back seat's going to be screaming, are we there yet? So Yeah, and how much time did it take to charge it back up? Yeah, the, yeah I mean, that's normally, you know, you do a round trip up to Gaylord. Uh, we did an overnight trip. Uh, that's normally about a six-hour drive. It took us uh, eight hours. Oh, wow. So, you know, I, I, I think that's where the EVs, are really struggling now is to get over that hump from early adopters. I, I've got a Tesla Model 3. I love it. I'm a, I'm a motorhead. i got multiple cars in my garage. Uh, but if the only car in your garage is a Kia EV9 and you got family and you need to get, you know, up north to see the family and back, it can be a real struggle. Jeff Locke from Fox Business just did a test like that, and he, he went to bed with 20 miles of range left on the vehicle, got up the next morning, turned it on, and it said, you have six miles to find a charger. 
And, and overnight of yeah, nothing. Yeah, because things cooled down. The batteries got cold, didn't have time to preheat anything. And it's so like you, Henry, that's a, those, that's a nasty awakening. Yeah, uh, and, and he was in a Tesla. And the, I, I, yeah, I watched some of that flock coverage. And, and uh, Tesla, was, he, he's in a Tesla very similar to the one I own. He was driving a Model Y which is the SUV version of, of the Model 3. And Tesla has the most robust charging structure out there. And part of the problem for me when I was testing the Kia EV9, and this isn't a knock just on the EV9. I mean, this is a general challenge mm-hmm. for all EVs, is that if, it's, if you're on a non-Tesla network, you don't know who's running that network. You don't know if chargers are available or not. At least with a Tesla charger, it's all in, in-house, so you know if the chargers are working. Uh, you know, one of the issues I had when I was going north was I went to the uh, charger up in Waters, Michigan. It wasn't working. Uh, you know, I got there, and I, you, so you're always planning to make sure you have enough range because the charger you get to may not have, uh, may not be available, and then you got to be able to go to the next charger. So it's a real challenge. Henry, talk about truck of the year. Ho hum, Ford got it again. The Ford Super Duty. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Ford has been making the best-selling truck, uh, best-selling vehicle in America for the last 40 years, and this is why. I mean, the, the, their trucks are so good, the, the lineup is so complete, and, you know, I, I voted for the Chevy Colorado. I, I, I love midsize trucks. Um, to me, they're more relevant uh, to, to a broader customer, uh, so I voted for the Chevy Colorado, but but you but you have the, the Ford uh, – Super Duty, in this case the 250, which is part of this 150, 250, 350, et cetera, lineup. And they're so good. They're so high-tech. They do everything that those customers want that the uh, the jury uh, voted for the Super Duty. But it was tight. I mean, the, the Chevy Silverado EV was right in there competing against the Colorado and this in the uh, Super Duty. Well, and that's the good news. It was a very competitive field. I have a question, though. If there are these problems with EVs, how did they become the top of the list and winning yeah I, I, again i look at the trucks i mean a lot of these uh, automakers have invested a lot of money into electric trucks uh, they're looking at local fleets um, you know utility fleets uh, port fleets when you go out to the west coast uh, where these vehicles have, have you know they can charge and uh, and just do limited 200 mile uh, errands in their normal course of the day but you you, you put them into a customer's hands and the towing really becomes a, a challenge. I'll give you another example. Um, going up north, I tried to tow a boat in a, a Ford Lightning uh, SUV, which won car of the, uh, car, one truck of the year last year. And uh, the Lightning's range is 300. You put, a, you put any, any sort of tow behind it, in my case, a 1,500-pound uh, boat, and the, and the range goes to 100 miles. Yeah. It, lo- it loses wow. two-thirds of its towing cape of its of its range when you tow and they don't and want the, to talk and, about that do they well and, and here's the thing the the chargers as you go up i-75 the electrify america chargers are about 120 miles apart so you you wouldn't even be able to get from one charger to another at a hundred mile range if you're towing in a truck it's a, it's a real issue so uh we should point out this uh, tesla did not provide the cyber truck for you guys to judge which is interesting so that's unfortunate because it's one of the most talked about vehicles out there but as you look ahead to 2024 um we've got some nominees for the the new year ahead including the corvette e-ray what what vehicles are you most looking forward to judging in the new year 
Oh man, I mean, they're they're I, I count sixty of them coming already. I mean, you have so much product uh, in the market because you sort of have these two parallel lines. You have a uh, gas gas lines, uh, legacy gas lines, in addition to all these new uh, electric lines uh, coming. So there's there's all kinds of good good stuff. I mean, one of the one of the things we we're really looking forward to this year was uh, in the twenty the the year just passed was we were hoping we we're going to get Chevy Colorado, Toyota Tacoma, and Ford Ranger all going head to head. We didn't get that. The uh, Ranger and the Tacoma got pushed into next year, so you'll have those two midsize trucks uh, going at each other. Uh, that's going to be fun to judge uh, those two trucks. Uh, the trucks have just gotten really good because they're kind of like SUVs now. You know, people use them as daily drivers, so they're very high tech. Yeah. Well, uh, we can read all about it in the Detroit News under Henry Payne's byline, and you can always get uh, Henry's latest test drives and also the the ups and downs of living in the EV transition. <laughs> and your uh, your your bride sure is a tolerant soul as you're taking all these extra stops. I hope you feed her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she's she's a great lady. Yeah, wait, get, wait, wait till I take her up north in the Tesla Cybertruck. That'll yeah. be an interesting trip. Yeah. She's one of my yoga buddies. So I, uh, I feel her pain. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much, Henry. Do take care. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good to be with you. All right. And we should point out the one thing, you know, you know, f- functional always is you sometimes is ugly. The new Toyo Prius, pretty good looking. We'll be back. It is the busiest crossing in North America, so important to the economy. And, of course, there will be a new way to get between the U.S. and Canada. We had expected that it would be sooner rather than later, but with the pandemic, we knew there might be some delays. Now we know uh, just how long those delays will be. It may be 2025, uh, September or thereabouts, uh, before we can cross the magnificent Gordie Howe International Bridge, which we see out of our window. And I don't know about you guys. I love to check on it every morning. Oh, yeah. It's pretty. Mm -hmm. When I'm on 75, I look up. Yeah, it's just a fascinating uh, piece of engineering and architecture. And we welcome in uh, Heather Grondin, who is the Vice President of Corporate Affairs and External Relations for the Windsor-Detroit Bridge Authority. Heather, good morning. Good morning. So we kind of knew uh, when we were up at Mackinac, we had heard some rumblings uh, that there may be some delays. Just fill us in on, on what was behind the announcement yesterday. Yeah, so, you know, we've been able to make great progress over the last few years, and especially over 2023. And really what we were able to do over that time is, you know, see how how far we could go, how much work we could get done, but also take stock of how much is left to do. And with that and and reflecting on uh, the pandemic and impacts related to the pandemic, uh, we've now confirmed that the opening is going to now be um, fall 2025. So we expect completion to be done in September of 25 and opening to happen just a little bit after that. What did, uh, Heather, the delay uh, cost, what is the cost going to be with the delay? Yeah, so we've also increased the overall contract value. So our original contract value, which which we had set in uh, 2018, was $5.7 billion Canadian. And we're now looking at an overall contract cost of $6.4 billion. So who covers that extended cost? Yeah, the government of Canada. So as as we've always done and as as the government of Canada had committed um, back in 2012, uh, Canada is financing the entirety of the project, and that does include this new contract value. 
So as as you look at that, obviously with that heavier load, you might have to recoup it. Will that impact the tolls that we pay? No, you know, we're still looking. We haven't set our toll rate yet, um, but we will be setting it as a competitive rate. You know, we want to ensure that the bridge is accessible and that the bridge is used and that it's that ultimately the toll is set at a rate that will attract people to use it and then is also you know comparable to what other crossings of this nature would charge. So if this takes longer, that means more disruption to the communities where this construction is happening. What does this extended time mean for them? Yeah, so we definitely recognize that. And, you know, an important part of our project has always been our community benefits plan. So in recognition of the fact that we are having a longer construction period, you know, an extra nine to 10 months, we are adding an extra year and an extra $3 million to our community benefits plan. So that $3 million will be split evenly on both sides of the border. So that will mean about another $1.5 million in community investments over that year of construction. Uh, There are a lot of businesses over there, though, uh, that are are pretty happy with it being extended because they get a lot of business from the construction workers over there. And so they're like, oh, well, you know, we'll we'll take it. No, that is so true. So I I won't drop any names. One of my favorite food trucks is very close to the construction (laughs) site. And I often see some of our branded vehicles in the parking lot nearby. So, um, you know, I do think there is there is definitely some positives. I mean, it's another year of people working on the site, Um, you know, on an average day. Not so much now in the winter, but Mm -hmm. over the spring, summer, and fall months, we have anywhere between 2,000 to 2,500 people working across our four sites. So that's more people working, that's more people visiting the businesses, as you noted, um, more goods and services being um, being bought and paid for during that construction phase. And, you know, and then more time for other businesses who might be able to leverage the bridge once it's in operations to kind of start thinking about what they should be doing and how they should be getting ready. What are your, your forecasts in terms of vehicle traffic, uh, you know, pre-opening uh, in terms of the uh, the volume of trade and commercial vehicles, things like that going forward? Because that's kind of a, a good indicator of where our economy is headed and an economy that relies on this this friendship with Canada. Yeah, you know, I don't have exact numbers, but we're definitely anticipating that about 75% of the type of vehicles that will be crossing the bridge will be commercial traffic. So really those long-haul trucks that you see And what we're anticipating is, you know, obviously a number of regional businesses using the bridge, but ultimately what we're expecting is uh, trade coming from basically Montreal going through our corridor and then all the way down to Laredo and into Mexico. So that's the general flow that we're expecting to see traffic come back and forth through. Uh, Heather, I watched the time lapse and it's mm. interesting to watch this bridge being built and the two sides getting closer and closer to mm-hmm. touching. Oh, yeah, it's um, the time lapse over t- 2023 itself is just fascinating to see how much was done. Um, you know, really, I think our big achievement for 2023 was those towers reaching their full height. So now fully standing at 720 feet, which is just amazing. And then the road deck, which if you can if you can imagine, we just started the part of the deck that goes over the river in December of 22, and it's now well over 50% done. So that's is that the main thrust for construction uh, in 2024, extending to September of 25? It's the road deck? 
definitely. So over 24, we can expect to see that road deck meeting in the middle. We'll probably see that happen around summer. And then another big achievement that we're expecting this year is the completion of all of the state cable installation. So we have uh, 216 state cables that need to be installed. Again, that work started just in 2023, and we expect to be able to complete all of that this year as well. So you're going to have a celebration when when that contact point happens, maybe a little handshake across the the gap (laughs) there uh, as you're closing it? We're definitely going to have to do something because I think that's, you know, when in years from now, when we look back and reflect on this bridge and the construction time of the bridge, there are going to be key points that were really monumental, and I definitely think that's one of them. We should be broadcasting from there. I think so. There you <laughs> if it's a warm month, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. I, actually, listen, Heather, you know we've made this offer before. We are up to broad, be the first folks to broadcast live either from the road deck or – and I know you guys don't mind heights uh, from one of the spires. I know you've got room up there. There's room for the three of us, oh, I'm sure. Geez. I'll see what I can do. Okay. All right. Boy, that's that's just the level of commitment I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're, we're glad that there uh, – we're sorry that there had to be a, a delay. We realize that there are so many things here that were beyond your control with the pandemic. Yeah the supply chain disruption, things like that. Uh, we, we, we welcome the construction conclusion, and thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. And do take care. That's Heather Grandin, Vice President of Corporate Affairs and External Relations for the Detroit Windsor Bridge Authority. Uh, speaking of trade, uh, we've been watching what's happening in the Red Sea, right, with yeah. these container ships being attacked by mm-hmm. Houthi rebels, uh, the, the U.S. responding yesterday by taking out one of their uh, leading organizers. Uh, the cost of a 40-foot shipping container uh, crossing the Red Sea and the Asia Mediterranean route is now $5,000. That is uh, roughly 25% higher than the cost of running it around the North American East Coast or or uh, from the Asia to Pacific route. So that's it's $5,000 per container versus 4000 everywhere else. That's going to impact what you pay for shipping going forward. And and that isn't going to get any easier going forward. They expect that to still be a problem uh, with the terrorists and the and the pirates there. But there's other things happening that can mess with our supply chain. Uh, extreme weather, number one risk for 2024. The Panama Canal is having its worst drought since 1950 when record keeping began. The wildfires in Canada disrupted the supply chain. That's not expecting. It's not expected to get better Mm -hmm. this year. So brace for higher shipping costs in the new year. Uh, When we come back, 3,000 people were charged with unemployment fraud. They didn't do it. So how do you make amends there? Marie Osborne with that story next on JR Morning at 749. We know that Michigan's Unemployment Insurance Agency has been fraught with problems, I mean, on and off going back 20 and 30 years, but... Most recently, uh, as we headed into the pandemic, we saw hundreds of millions of dollars in fraud. A new audit released in the past week shows that perhaps another $200 million between 2020 and 2023 uh, were fraudulently paid out to people that didn't deserve it. Well, now something is more personal. 3,000 Michigan residents were wrongly accused of defrauding the Michigan UIA. So on the one hand, they're not enforcing the doggone 
uh, oversight and they're allowing too many dollars to go out. But when they do enforce, they're hitting the wrong people. So 3,000 people wrongly accused. Where do you go to get your reputation back? Well, they will now be getting uh, an average of $1,600 following a settlement of a class action lawsuit. This goes back to accusations made 10 years. This ensnared some friends of mine who just signed up for, as they would, when they were jobless, and then got accused of being fraudulent based on nothing. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne explains it all started with software and computers, Marie. Yeah, our favorite topic, right, Guy? And these people really were put through the ringer. This lawsuit, Bozerman versus Michigan's Unemployment Agency, is awaiting a judge's approval. It should come later this month. It was filed in 2015 after nearly 40,000 Michigan residents were accused of fraud by state computer system that operated without any human supervision and had an error rate as high as 93%. The lawsuit settlement is $20 million. It was approved by the state court of claims a year ago. The computer system was called the Michigan Integrated Data Automated System. It was implemented by former Governor Rick Snyder. Claimants were given quadruple penalties. They were subjected to aggressive collection techniques. Many had their wages garnished and their income tax refunds seized. Some people even had to file for personal bankruptcy here. Multiple lawsuits have been filed against the state's UIA because of this system. Some of the claimants were awarded extra money for all their trouble, some as high as uh, $4,000. The attorneys representing the plaintiffs also in this case, they're getting a fee of about $6.6 million. Again, all this hinges on the uh, judge's approval. The reason, by the way, that not all 40,000 claimants were included in the class action is because the Supreme Court here in Michigan uh, limited who could sue based on the timing. So that's why some people did not um, were not able to get in on this class. Now, one last thing, uh, everyone. There will be a fairness hearing on January 29th in the Michigan Court of Claims where members of this class can voice their support or their opposition to the settlement, and I'm sure we'll hear an earful. Marie, the, the claimants are going to get checks uh, averaging how much? $1,600, which, when you think about it, hardly seems enough. Well, yeah, because right. if, if my wages have been garnished and they yes. took my income tax yes. refund, that's <sighs> probably more than $1,600. Not to yes. mention there was a red flag by your name until this thing yes. was resolved, not to mention the frustration, the anxiety about being labeled a criminal. A crim- uh, that, to me, is the most important thing, is the reputation, right? But imagine not being able to uh, get a, a mortgage or get a loan for a car. Or, you know, as we know, employers do background checks. What if they saw something exactly. like this on your... I mean, this one's a real black eye if, they, if an employer saw this on your record. So, I mean, there are just countless things that we can talk about here. Any information on what the state is doing so this doesn't happen again? Well, they're obviously going to have to pay a lawsuit. Hopefully the ding will uh, will be important enough. The, the state, by the way, is no longer using this computer system. Of course, that's always good to hear <laughs> yes. that they're not using it anymore. Uh, but uh, so let's just hope that this is enough of a ding that they're going to say we need to do better.
And one of the one of the key things here is that this computer was allowed to run without a person involved uh, to kind of oversee it. That just seems uh, incredible to me. Yeah. So you definitely need human humans yeah. here. Yeah, humans are needed. <laughs> yeah, and, and we should point out that here in the Fisher Building, we come into contact with a lot of those humans because they work across the, across street, the street at the old General Motors right. building. The Cadillac building, yeah. And they're wonderful people. I, I don't know, though, if all those people are back to work yet. Well, uh, we come in true. so early, we have no idea that's, what's yeah, going this on. This is true. I'm, I'm but I know one person who does work for them, and she's not back, back yet. Mm-mm. Yeah, I mean, it, there is a discernible reduction in foot traffic, but you're right, it's a little different than I was getting lunch but at the Tony Man. But this went back 10 years. This went yeah. back 10 years ago. So this had nothing to do this is they can't blame this on the pandemic. This had no. this happened before that. No. So, yeah. Very very true. And and this is yeah. I mean, how many different computer systems have we gone through in the <sighs> state? <laughs> Hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh boy. Marie, thank you so much. Thanks guys. Have a great weekend. You, you too. too. Uh, Axios reporting today that one of the trends that they're watching for 2024 is kind of cool. It is nostalgia for pre-internet times. Now, this is something that resonates maybe a little bit more with with me than you, because there's a well, no, Lloyd, you've got yeah. gray in your beard as I do, <laughs> um, but Boomers, Gen Xers, and and what they call elder millennials are the only ones who remember life before. The internet. Maybe I'm an elder millennial because I know a life before the internet. And yeah. It was lovely. Exactly. <laughs> we didn't have social media. Nope. We actually talked. We didn't text one another. We talked. You know, I did have a phone oh. when I turned 16, but it was one of those bricks. You couldn't do anything but call people. Yeah. Well, do you remember, I mean, as a reporter in this town, having to carry uh, a bunch of dimes in your pocket because oh, you had to hit the pay phones? Absolutely. That was the only way to call your assignment desk. Yep. And they were everywhere on every corner. <laughs> and, and you needed the assignment desk in many cases to make calls to your sources yes. or, or, you know, to do a lot of advanced setup work for you because you couldn't do it while you were in the truck going to the next scene or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. You couldn't multitask. And you had to do beep calls because there wasn't the internet to give you ideas. It, Exactly. I mean, it's made, I got to say, it's made us much more efficient as as journalists, but um, there are going to be a number of movies and TV shows that kind of explore this this nostalgia for the pre-internet times. One of the things I I, I noted about this this is the notion of pay phones. Paul Egan with a story yesterday in the Free Press saying uh, in the 1980s, there were 60,000 pay phones in the state of Michigan. Try to find one now. I'm telling you. I, there o- must be zero. Only with, with, with cell phones and uh, and texting and everything else, only 260 pay phones. Oh, they're so I'm surprised. That's, yeah. I'm surprised at that many. <laughs> and, that, and that's outside of prisons and jails. <laughs> 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 so thanks to Paul Egan's. That's one of those inquiring minds. I didn't know that I needed to know that, but I'm yeah. glad uh, that I do. Makes sense. But, I mean... You know, I, I, I found out yesterday that a good friend of mine that his daughter is having a, a bad health implica- uh, complication. I found out through Facebook. So there are good things. You know, you can get a heads up of things that are happening mm-hmm. in people's lives. So I could reach out to him and say, hey, hope things are going okay. Right. But other than that, I mean, what do you miss most? I actually, I actually miss holding a map. Yeah. Oh, my father was big on atlases, man. Are you kidding me? And he taught yeah. us how to read those suckers. Too. I liked the AAA triptych maps. Yeah. When yeah I, when I my husband and I were talking about this. His dad used to do the triptychs on their trips and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So it's uh, check it out. It's uh, Axios.com. It's in their What's Next section. Uh, but they said one of the things that they noticed in the Air Jordan movie, uh-huh. Ben Affleck's trying to sign Michael, and he can't get to where he's going because he can't figure out where he's going on a map. <laughs> and they said, you know, that's the kind of nostalgia. And, and friends are also picking up Seinfeld and Friends episodes to kind of relive that as well. We'll be back. Uh, checking the markets, uh, the futures, yeah, kind of down a little bit. Everybody's kind of a wait and see right now because the government jobs report is going to come out around 830, which should give us maybe a little bit more of a clear some of the fog in our crystal ball over whether or not we're going to see interest rate cuts anytime soon. So as soon as that uh, comes out, we'll try to get that to you. In the meantime, uh, Ford Motor Company reporting its sales yesterday, 7% increase uh, in the new year. That's uh, their uh Best year in the industry since 2019, but sales of 2 million vehicles for our friends down in Dearborn. And uh, the F-Series continues to be the best-selling vehicle in the United States. going to be a big day over on the west side of the state as we try to get some clarity on how 13 different districts are going to be redrawn. A a lower court has ordered them to be uh, redrawn. And over in Kalamazoo... Uh, the folks that brought this suit in the first place who have said that the voices of black voters have been diluted under this independent commission that redrew the uh, the boundaries, um, that they need they need help. And they're asking for a special master. Well, they the commission met yesterday, and instead of trying to undertake a fix and maybe hiring a special master of its own, they've decided to appeal it to the Supreme Court. So in, instead of taking action... They're going to delay action, and we don't know where we're going to get word from uh, the Supreme Court, but they're going to do that instead. It's kind of a kick-the-can-down-the-road thing. It does beg the question, what needs to be done? Because clearly this independent commission isn't working the way we thought it would. Yeah, and it's just like timing-wise with elections coming up, what's going to happen here? Yeah, it just throws one more cloud. We've got all the exactly all these efforts trying to throw Trump off the ballot. It hasn't been successful here in Michigan, but now Illinois, Massachusetts joining Maine, Colorado, and others. And by the way, they were supposed to print, begin printing ballots today, today in yeah. Colorado. So what's going to happen there? I think there's a stay in place, so they have to hold off on that. But that certainly puts new... And we haven't heard from the Supreme Court. And our situation here, what's going to happen today in court, uh, because now they want to appeal this, kicking the can down the road. So is it going to have any effect on what happens today? Yeah, it's just, I mean, it seemed like a, it's one of those, seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> it um, sure does. People from both sides, independent. Sucking the politics out of it, right. just having an objective approach to this. Uh, but it, uh, they got some bad advice. And uh, so unclear how that's going to work out going forward, because you're right, mm-hmm. the clock is ticking. Um, in in the state of Michigan uh, and here in Detroit, concern about what our officers face the world is always dangerous for them, yes. getting more so. Yeah, journalist George Hunter in the Detroit News reporting that, according to stats, Michigan cops are being assaulted 
at unprecedented levels, even though they're making fewer arrests than they have in decades. There were about 1,700 officers assaulted in Michigan in 2022, the highest number in the Michigan State Police online database that goes back to 1997. Arrests for obstructing police in Michigan were also at an all-time high in 2022, the latest year for which figures were available. State police will release their crime data for 2023 in the fall, but they put much of the blame on increased aggression on encounters with the mentally ill and the defund the police sentiments expressed after the George Floyd uh, murder. Now, Matt Saxon, he's director of the Michigan Sheriff's Association. He told the Detroit News, a lack of respect for authority is the blame for the increased number of citizens who run from cops or assault them. He said, we're not just seeing it with police guy. Teachers are being assaulted all over the place. And he says medical personnel are being assaulted as well. Nobody's being held accountable. No. And, you know, we're, we're well past now the pandemic and all the frustrations that came there. You got to wonder what what have you got against healthcare workers that are all there just tr- they're trying to help you. all they're trying to do. Is it's just this you. heightened just tension everywhere, everywhere. And yeah. that exploded at a school in Iowa yesterday. We're talking about another school shooting. It was the first day of classes following winter break. A 17 year old student at Perry High School in Iowa Bailey shot a sixth grader and wounded four other students and a school administrator. This happened around 737, so school hadn't quite begun, but it was breakfast time. The shooter was armed with pump-action shotgun and a small-caliber handgun. They also found an improvised explosive device that did not go off. The shooter is identified as Dylan Butler. The evidence indicates he acted alone. There's also evidence uh, you know, of a social media presence where he felt bullied and he felt alone. Um, this follows a year in which there were more than 80 school shootings, more than any other year since they've been keeping track of this. This is just nuts that this continues to happen in our schools. And the the, the red flags being missed again and again. I don't know what the answer is, but is there <coughs> a commission? Are there people thinking about this? There, what there can are. we do? Yeah, we, the amazing thing is after that happened, you talk about exploited. The, the minute after that happened in Iowa, before we even knew if there was a fatality, I had things hitting my inbox from companies saying we can make schools safer. It was really yeah. kind of disgusting how yeah. quickly they were pushing out stuff saying, hey, do you want to book us as a guest? Um, here's the problem. One of the things that we saw at Oxford was – there are threat assessment protocols where you can look and see, like this high school junior, that everybody seems to know that was being bullied, bullied mm-hmm. and and was angry. You have threat assessment protocols where that person will be identified by a school counselor as someone who needs help. But with the internet, how often are people looking in at these kids' social medias? I, you know, can we get to them before they get to Do this something? Point? And have we heard like from that. the parents of this kid? Yeah. No, I think it's early on. Yeah. I just, it's just so upsetting as a parent of a little girl who's going to start school. Right. Mm-hmm. How do you protect these kids? Yeah. Because you exp- you send them to school and you expect them when to When I come went home. to school, I was not worried about no, school shooting. No, absolutely not. Yeah. So what's different? No, we did have to worry about being bullied. But yes, we didn't there have was to bullying. Worry. Yeah, yeah, right. But we just, did, we, we, for whatever reason, we didn't reach for a gun in those days. And we did fire drills. We didn't do active yeah. shooter drills. And, and no, no, we you, but we, we, we would settle our differences sometimes with our fists, but yeah. we didn't, you know. Uh, and you made up and you're your friends and you, exactly. you, went, out, and you exactly. went about your business. Right? Uh, on a lighter note, have you seen the magnificent picture? It's called For All the Roses of a, it was a high shot looking down upon the Rose Bowl. 
literally what looks like a 30,000 square of 30,000 foot shot, but it wasn't. It was 4,000 foot of the Rose Bowl as a B-1 bomber came over during the, the, the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, it's a magnificent shot. It was done by a Traverse City photographer by the name of Tyler LeBrandt, who spent a lot of money and time and effort and a little bit of risk uh, to get that shot. And if you've got somebody in your family that's a, that's a Wolverines fan, it would be a great commemorative photo to, to frame Absolutely. for them. And he says, yeah, he was asked by a local 4WDIV, what was your inspiration? I think three years ago, I saw a shot from the Rose Bowl with the stealth bomber and knew that someday, like if Michigan ever made the Rose Bowl, I'm dropping whatever I'm doing, I'm going, and I'm going to do whatever I can to get that shot. And So what does that mean? He chartered the helicopter? Charters the helicopter. Now, there was no guarantee that he was going to get approval for this, but there's a bubble over that region. Right. No air traffic within five miles. And then no air traffic. If there is air traffic, it has to be above 4,000 foot AGL above ground. Mm-hmm. So um, that so and then you got to ask permission to do that. That's right. So that was very much in question. The whole trip for me was a gamble, you know, and that was like a gamble that I was willing to take to get the top of my bucket list shot. So he gets approval. Now you talk about game time pressure. There was a lot of pressure on the Wolverines. There's a lot of pressure on Tyler too. To, to capture that instantaneous moment when this bomber, flying at a very high rate of speed, crosses over that field. Ever since I booked the trip and had that month of planning, like I was nervous then because I'm spending a lot of money uh, to get out there. I travel quite a bit, so I'm leaving my family again. And just like all for a split second, you know, trying to capture that shot. And he did. You're looking down. I could not see it because it's coming down from the mountaintop. And um, finally, at the last second, I picked up on it and just started snapping photos. And I and so then I looked at it, knew I got it. And that's when I started celebrating in the back and fist bumping my brother. So those hookups between JJ and his receivers, those were split second. So was Tyler. Imagine if he spent all this money and missed it. It was kind of oh. off frame or something. <laughs> right, right. I don't, well, and you're working in sync with the pilot to try to get it. It was just an incredible thing. If you get a chance to see it, you check can it buy out. It. And you can buy it. There's yes. a link it's called For All the Roses. For All the Roses. So he'll make his money back. Oh, I think so. <laughs> and yeah, some. Because he got <laughs> the shot. When we come back, there's one thing absent from the Great Lakes and from a lot of inland lakes as well ice. So what does that do to our lake levels? What does that do to our environment? We'll explore it next at 819 on JR Morning. We were up north last weekend. Um, No ice on Little Traverse Bay. No ice on our lake. It was completely covered at this time last year. Uh, What, and and in terms of measuring the ice, we're in record-setting territory when we talk about the lack of ice coverage on the Great Lakes and on some of our inland lakes. And God help you if you're an ice fisherman and you enjoy that, you're you're in your easy chair uh, right now. And unclear when it will get any better. Uh, but the folks at NOAA, uh, the National Oceanographic uh, Administration, uh, the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab, are charting this and can give us some context to just how warm things are. Jennifer Day is Director of Communications uh, for the lab. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. In terms of ice coverage, where are we this year compared to, let's say, the, the last half century? Well, you know, there's 
lots of ways to look at ice. And I know today people are really concerned uh, because we basically have no ice out on the lakes. It's less than 1%. Um, but we have been here before. And uh, we have a long way to go in the ice season. This is the very beginning. And so it's a little difficult to predict for where it will go from here. We usually max out on ice at, you know, uh, you know, with the end of February, maybe early March. And, uh, but right now it, it's pretty low. And I know there's a lot of concern out there, especially in the Great Lakes region in Michigan, because a lot of businesses depend on that. And, and as you said, so we, we're, are we reading too much into this? Because we, we are at the beginning and the early part of winter. And, and I mean, you know, there have been cases where uh, a warm start and, and low ice amounts have switched to higher than average ice amounts after a much colder short-term period. Right, exactly. So today, as you said, we're really low. Um, but for the whole season, we'll have to see. In every season, we get so much variability when it comes to ice cover. Uh, for example, you know, in 2002, we had a total maximum ice cover of about 12% for the whole season. Really bad ice year for us. But just as recent as 2019, we had an 81% um, total ice cover. If you remember that winter, we had those polar vortexes, that really frigid air, mm -hmm. and that could just balloon the amount of ice that we have. And it could happen very quickly depending on, you know, how the weather um, uh, plays out for the rest of the season. I understand variability, variability from year to year, but there are scientists saying this is a trend in the last 50 years. It, it is absolutely a trend. You know, we've been studying and, and tracking the ice coverage um, over a long period of time for decades. And what we're seeing is that when you look at the long-term trend, say over the last 50 years, we're really seeing that decrease, that about 5% decrease on ice overall over each decade, um, which is adding up to quite a bit of ice loss um, on trends um, when you look at it that way. So that is a big concern for us. So if, if, if we've got voters out there that are saying, you know, we saw super high lake levels just a couple of years ago where people were almost wringing their hands saying, well, levels are almost too high. Well, now, it, with, with the lack of ice cover, are we going to see increased evaporation? Will that mean lower lake levels? And will I be able to get my boat and my slip? Right, exactly. I know the levels have been going down year over year, especially since that high just a few years ago. Um, and uh, lack of ice cover is a big concern when it comes to that. Uh, a lot of people don't realize it. But the most evaporation actually happens during the winter. Yeah. And when we don't have ice, that also increases lake effect snow. So it may give us actually increased snow um, depending on those weather conditions. And is but it beach? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I oh, interrupted right. you. But my question was about beach erosion. Um, I'm sorry, what? My question was about beach erosion. Well, finish yeah. your thought on the lake levels, though, because I'm still wondering whether or not I'm going to be high and dry. <laughs> so, yeah, so when it comes to, to lake levels, you know, we have had some very rainy winters where we've had a lot of warm weather. And if we get increased precipitation that falls as rain as opposed to snow, that water doesn't get held in the snow for that spring melt. It actually flows right into the lakes and can increase our water okay. levels. So, 
there's some variability there as well as far as weather evaporation and uh, as opposed to just getting rain during the winter will impact those lake levels. Um, but erosion is a big issue. When we do not have ice, those winter storms, as we know, can be pretty violent. And uh, that ice per and that protects us from that erosion hitting our shores. Yeah, it was interesting. Last year we were watching eagles uh, feeding at the, the one little patch of lake that hadn't, <laughs> hadn't, uh, uh, hadn't thawed yet. So for some species, this is a good thing. We've seen tons of eagles up north. They're hanging right. around. Right, yeah. Um, I, I think that there are some pros and cons to uh, the levels of ice that we have out there. But, for example, um, Lake Whitefish need that ice. That's where they spawn during the winter under that ice, and it helps protect their eggs. So it's, it's very detrimental not to have that ice for, uh, say, Lake Whitefish. So, so they, they can't breed the eagles and not going to ride, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure the shipping community is really appreciating the lack of ice. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, you know, I was going to say, because, you know, the lack of ice, uh, it impacts economies and it impacts shipping as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I wonder what's going on in Mackinac, because sometimes they just take uh, snowmobiles across, not this year. <laughs> yeah, where, what are they going to do with all those old Christmas trees that were they used to make the, 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 the guardrails yeah. uh, on their on their uh, ice track? Um that's one of the issues we have with this decreasing trend because a lot of communities in the upper Great Lakes really depend on those ice roads, not just for snowmobiling, but really literally ice roads that help us get around right. during winter. And if we don't have that, um, it could um, cause problems. So the, the headline on this is Great Lakes uh, begin the year with the smallest amount of ice in at least 50 years. Um, but can we look, I mean, one of the things that was interesting was people saying, well, the lake levels are higher than they've ever been. Well, we looked back 100 years into newspaper clippings and found out that they were saying the same things. These things go in cycles. So are we out of cycle here? Um, regarding lake levels? Yeah. Um, well, I think, and this is one of the things that we're concerned about and we're tracking and looking at is that I think on average you could look at these high water and low water cycles over periods of say 30 years um, where we would go high, we would, we would return to lows. And now, and as you could see in our really recent um, um, past, where in, I think it was 2013, we had record water levels. And then in 17, 18, we went to record high levels all in one decade right. and, and really over a period of five years. And, and, and even now it's decreased, what, two and a half feet on Lake Michigan. Um, so we're having these crazy, um, really quick getting to high levels right. and then dropping off so quickly. And we really do believe that, um, you know, with climate change and moving into the future, that we're really looking at those um, highs and lows coming more often and being more extreme. Yeah. So we still have these cycles. They're just now kind of compressed. Uh, Jennifer Day, we thank you for the information. And we'll, we'll hope for some cooler temperatures. Take care. So breaking news for you, the long-awaited jobs report has come out uh, from the Labor Department. The economy grew by 216,000 jobs in December. That was more than expected. So again, 
uh, surprising resilience in the labor market. This is going to be one of those big flags for the Fed that may say, well, we're going to put off those interest rate cuts just a little bit longer because they may see it as, as the economy having just a little bit too much heat. We'll await that. But the market, uh, the future's trending lower on the open. I'll tell you, you're trying to talk about a team whose stock is rising. Trending in the right direction. Yes, Yes. the Michigan State University Spartans five-game win streak and uh, beginning the 2024 Big Ten season with a major win. We're joined by WJR sports analyst Steve Courtney and the coach from the Spartans, Tom Izzo. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Guy. Hello again, everyone. This conversation with Magnum T.I. brought to you by the hardworking men and women at Bill Brown Ford. Forward down the field, you know the W's have been stacking up. Nice night for the winged wheelers last night in the City of Angels. My good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their True View inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. Yeah, rather convincing win for your Michigan State Spartans. 92-61 last night, getting back into Big Ten play against the Penn State Nittany Lions. And let me just say it was the Malik Hall show. Uh, His uh, career high, matching it with 24 points, putting on a clinic from the field, 9 of 12. And he also hit both of his three-point attempts while also collecting four assists to go along with three steals. Coach, how are you this morning? Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. I'm glad you're back working after you took a month off. (laughs) (laughs) And slight exaggeration, but whatever. Uh, you know, again, you, you got to be happy uh, with the way this team has responded. As a matter of fact, uh, Tom, you hit 36 of 64 from the field. Simple arithmetic dictates that's 56.3%. Uh, you had five scores in double digits. And uh, you're talking about complimentary hoops right now. Well, we really are. And uh, you're right. I, I mean, in the first half, I think Jaden had one shot. AJ might have had three points, and we had 51. And uh, you know, so we're getting some production out of some other guys. And I, I think everybody's stepped up their game a little bit. Our defense has been phenomenal, and because of that, we're getting our running game going. But uh, you know, we still got some warts. We still got a long way to go. But you know, and you get a little confused. I mean, I, I told the ref with seven minutes left. I said, hey. Not sure we're this good, and I know they're not this bad. They just they had a bad game. We had a good game, and sometimes that happens. Hopefully, we were the cause of some of both. But uh, we're we're making progress. You know, it's uh, it's it's kind of been good that we're uh, our, our three guards are really playing well, and Trey Holman played very well last night. Uh, wow. So that was encouraging. Marty Sissoko has twelve rebounds and did an unbelievable defensive job holding their guards. Their guards are really good. and uh, But uh, we held their one guard to, you know, zero points. And um, uh, he's, a, he's a good player, averaging, I think, 14 a game. And I think that was the difference in the game. So we're making some progress, guys. But uh, trust me, a long way to go. Coach, I mean, you, you won these five consecutive games, and, and this team just looks totally different from the team that opened the season, you know, losing five of the first nine. But they're playing with this confidence now, and, 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 and they seem to be having a lot of fun playing. 
Well, I think they are, Lloyd. I mean, I, I do think it can be an exciting team. You know, we can get up and down the court. We can make dunks. We can make threes. But, you know, in the last, uh, I don't know, I want to say six or seven games, um, even going back to Wisconsin, we're shooting almost 43% from the three. You know, we were shooting like 25% the first five, six games. So um, that's one thing that has changed. And uh, But I think, too, uh, you know, A.J.'s becoming more and more consistent. He's, uh, defensively, he's been very good. Offensively, he's really uh, done some good things. He had a bad stretch there where he turned the ball over three times in a row, and yet we still only had 12. And I think we were five the first half. That's big for us right now because uh, – Penn State was a pressing team that turned people over 17, 18 times a game. So we're we're doing a better job of making sure we stop people. We got to stop and take care of things that are the other team's strength, and that's uh, good for us. Uh, Coach, I just want to report. I took my husband to Cirque du Soleil on ice last night, and the skaters I think saw a bright light in our section because he kept checking your score. <laughs> The whole game. Uh, were any acrobats dropped as a result of that? I go, put your phone away. He goes, they're killing them. They're killing them. Uh, I'm glad somebody in the family has their priorities. <laughs> I want to see some ice skating. But anyway, that venue kind of was I'll the... I'll take you to the UP. There's a lot of it there. That venue where we were seeing ice skating last night was kind of the start of this fun run. Yeah, you know, it really uh, it has been fun. But, you know, as fast as we went from high expectations to in the doghouse, now we went from the doghouse to high expectations again. But it can go back. You know, you've seen a – I watched the end of uh, Arizona last night. They beat a good Colorado team by 30. And I had watched them a little bit a week ago, and they lost to one of the worst teams in the league, California, by 20. So uh, I told you it's going to be a topsy-turvy year because I, I just think that there's a lot of distractions going on with kids. And uh, if we can just keep them focused, um, I think that's going to be the big key to success. We go on the road to Northwestern, who hasn't been kind to us in the last couple of years. So hopefully our players will look at that and see if we can uh, continue playing good basketball. Yeah, that'll be a challenging tilt, Tom, no doubt about it. 7.30 tip Sunday night uh, at Northwestern. The Wildcats 10-3, and 1-1 one and one in conference play. Uh, they have beaten Purdue two straight years. You go back to December 2nd, they get a 92-88 win there. Very impressive. Boo Booey. What about this guy? 31 points in that win. Chris Collins uh, has got himself a nice program going there, Tom. He does. He's done a great job. He's got some size. He's got... He's got a superstar guard in Bowie, who's, I think, averaging 23, 24 points a game against us over the years. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to do a better job there. But Chris is a good coach. You know, his dad was a great coach. And uh, so it's been in the family. And, um, you know, the one good thing, sometimes when we go to Chicago, uh, we get a lot of Spartan fans that show up. And last night we had the Alumni is on. There are some guys almost as old as you in there, Steve. I forget all <laughs> oh. Really? Good to see. But they were they were awesome, man. And, you know, they came back from, I mean, everywhere from California to Florida. It, it was one of the cool parts of this job is to uh, see people. They come back, pay their way, do their thing. And um, 
I said they're they're getting a little older, some of them, but uh, the enthusiasm and the fun. Uh, I just love having them back, and it was great. The whole Lower Bowl was alumni his own, and how do you beat that? And we're lucky to have something like that. Were Quickly, they able Tom, to stand? Me... Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, were they able to stand the whole game since they're older? <laughs> some of them had to lean on people, but it was uh, yeah, that was <laughs> it was good. Uh, no, they're. I tell you what, um, I'm sure there were a lot of husbands and wives mad because I think the wives came back with their sorority friends and the husbands came back with their fraternity friends, but they were, I don't know how they were before and after the game, but they were awesome during the game. That's fun. Coach, uh, good luck against Northwestern. Congratulations on a great start to the new year, and uh, we'll talk with you next week. All right, guys, thank you, and have a good week. All right, yeah. you too. We will. Big weekend ahead. And, Steve, we'll look forward to checking in with you on Monday as well. I look forward to that, Guy. You know that. You folks have a wonderful weekend. You we as well. well. And happy Friday to you when we come back. Uh, you know, we don't see a lot of white out there. No snow, no ice. But up in northern Michigan, uh, you know, you can go skiing. And by the way, Mount Brighton opens at 3 p.m. today. So for those of you who embrace winter, there are opportunities. We'll get a check of what's happening up at Boyne Mountain next on JR Morning. You had a chance to uh, see a really great show on ice. We may not have much ice around here on the lakes, but uh, Cirque was amazing. Crystal is the show. It's at LCA. Cirque du Soleil on ice. I was wondering how they were going to do it because we did talk to the choreographer a couple weeks back. It's amazing. I loved it. As a former figure skater, yes, but there are families there. There are kids there. The way they do it with acrobatics over ice, it's even more death-defying. Yeah, yeah, something about landing on ice just it makes me shudder. And some of them were not tethered to anything. Yeah. And it was amazing. I, so, I love so it. Late, they always do great shows. So thrills and chills. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Dad joke alert. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> Um, no joke that, uh, with it, I, I used to have folks from up North in the ski industry, you know, when I would throw to weather, I'd say, well, thank goodness, no snow. And they would call me up and, you know, give me the business and say, Hey, remind people that just cause you don't have any snow down there in Metro Detroit, that we've got it up here because it's kind of out of sight, out of mind sometimes. Well, we wanted to check in with our friends at uh, Boyne mountain and Boyne highlands where they're celebrating some big anniversaries this year. Aaron Ernst is director of communications for Boyd, Michigan. Hi, Aaron. Hello. Thanks for having me. You got a lot of candles on that ice cream cake. Yes, we sure do. And yes, we very much love snow. We haven't gotten a huge amount of it given to us this year, but, um, you know, we're, uh, we're making the best out of it. And, um, you know, when we're light on snow, we're never light on fun. We've always got so much happening at our resorts and people have a great time. But you guys have been catching up because I've been, I've got a place up there and I've been watching the forecast myself. You've had some decent snow making weather. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, you know, it started off pretty warm, uh, not a lot of snow, not great temperatures for snowmaking. And really, um, you know, really it's turned around. New Year's Eve was a great turning point for us where those temperatures really dropped and allowed us to turn on the guns. And we have been going strong ever since then. So, and it makes so much difference where, you know, we have hundreds of guns and we're able to uh, make a lot of snow with those snow machines. And um, that's really what we've been doing to take advantage of, you know, the lack of natural snowfall this season. What is the snow report? How many runs are open at the highlands um, and at the mountain? Yeah, I mean, we have very uh, comparable terrain open at both. So we've got about 24 to 28 inch bases on the runs that we have available. Um, we have about four, uh, excuse me, four lifts going at each resort, about 11 trails. So 
you know, it's, it's a smaller percentage of the total acreage that we would typically have open, uh, 89 acres at Point Mountain and 80 acres at the Highlands. Um, but we are continuing to expand, you know, every day. So like you said, taking full advantage of every minute of snowmaking that we can. And um, that's really allowing us to continue to expand the train. So that's what we're focused on. And Aaron, once you finish with your skiing, you could uh, in the evening take a nice little romantic stroll on the Sky Bridge. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I mean by like, there's just so much fun to be had, you know, off the slopes. We have really expanded offerings. Um, at both of the resorts and have focused on that. We have Skybridge, Michigan at Point Mountain. It's the world's longest timber towered suspension bridge. And um, for this winter season, we added 150,000 twinkling lights to it. So it's a really spectacular display and not just for the holidays, though people really have enjoyed it um, for the season, but that will be up through March. So people can have that opportunity to experience that and uh, we have an enchanted trail experience at the Highlands, which is a walking trail that's all lit up uh, with lights as well and has music and interaction and a nice little warm yurt that you can warm up at at a midway point. So um, there's just a lot of experiences. Uh, we have zipline adventures, you know, at Boyd Mountain, we have Michigan's largest indoor water park. So people can really just come up and enjoy the best of the outdoors and some indoor activities too. And Technology-wise, there's a new lift at the Highlands that'll get you up quicker? Yeah, yeah. Actually, we have new lifts at both the Highlands and Boy Mountain. So at the Highlands, we have um, a six-place chairlift. It's a bubble lift, which is really fun. So it has an enclosure to keep you warm and toasty. It also has heated seats and footrests. So all the comforts while you go up the, the hill. It's about a three-minute ride up You're the top. You're spoiling so us. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's really fun for the Highlands with a bubble lift because um, the resort had the first world's first bubble chairlift back in the 60s. So um, we like to say we're coming full circle with our lift technology and bringing back a bubble chairlift. It's the only one in the Midwest, so kind of a fun, uh, fun thing to be able to try and experience if you would like. Um, and then we also um, opened up a new uh, beginner chairlift at Boyne Mountain. So we shifted kind of our chairlift that was the Boyne Lens lift um, over to a different line. And uh, that has been expanded to a four-person lift as well. It has a conveyor carpet and uh, also gets people up quicker on the hill. Well, it's no longer new. I think it's a year old. But your eight-man super fast lift is is still at least new in my mind if you haven't experienced oh, yeah. it at Boyne Mountain. I had a chance to get on it last year it's amazing how quick i wore out a lot faster because i <laughs> instead of standing in line i was get, going down up and down a lot of hills i mean it really increases yeah. your experience and that actually increases the value of your visit to boyne mountain it sure does yeah and that that one was a very big difference i mean uh if you used to ski in the disciples area boyne mountain those chairlift rides were about uh, nine to ten minutes long so you had a nice long break up on the hill um, as you were making your way up to the top, like I said, now it's very quick. It's so smooth. Um, eight people it can bring up there. And it really allowed a lot more people to get back over into right. that Disciples, re you know, region and ski it. Because, you know, in the past it was, you know, it could get longer lift lines, you know, and then it was a longer ride up to the top. And so sometimes people were like, eh, maybe it's not worth it. And especially for kids, you know, who get tired and cold and all of that. And time sometimes is precious out on the hill. Um, you know, it's been great for my daughter who's eight and really getting into skiing and it opened up a lot of that beginner to intermediate terrain for her to be able to get out and ski and she really progressed so much by being able to ride on that new disciples eight lift yeah well 
I got a three-year-old that's asking me, Pops, when are we going to go out skiing again? So Yeah, I'm perfect place to, to learn. Yeah. yeah. And then some uh, events uh, scheduled uh, coming up as well because you guys are celebrating your diamond anniversary, 75 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. So going into next weekend, we have the 75th celebration at Boy Mountain. January is going to be filled with celebrations because we then go into the 60th celebration at the Highlands. But there are so many great events with those um, at the mountain for the 75th. We have 75 hours of skiing at the challenge. The lights and lifts will literally be going 75 hours straight. Uh, so people can sign up for that. And um, we did one for our 70th. 70th anniversary and it was so much fun uh, proceeds go to challenge mountain uh, which helps people with adaptive skiing they're a great organization nearby boy mountain and um, you can sign up solo or as a team and those that make the most laps in that 75 hour period win prizes um, and they are dedicated people out there all night long skiing so it's really fun and a unique way to be able to ski truly into the night so um, we've got that we have a drone show um, the Highlands has a bunch of stuff between like vintage photo booths and fireworks and a European market. So lots of great stuff in store this month. Plus everything happening at Harbor Springs, Little Traverse Bay area, Petoskey, yeah. Charlevoix. It's a great region to visit. Um, Jennifer, Absolutely. we thank you so much. Excuse me, Aaron, Aaron. we thank you so much. <laughs> great to have you with us. And uh, again, happy anniversary to all our friends. Thank and you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you take care. Uh, just f- f- Final 60 seconds here. We're talking about things, ice and snow. Apparently, things are pretty frosty these days at the White House. Between uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, and this Pentagon spokesperson, John Kirby. You know, he's been getting a lot more podium time, mm-hmm. sometimes more than she has because of all the things happening in the world. Well, apparently, she's not happy about it. Says who? Uh, says Axios, mm. which <laughs> is uh, making headlines today. That, you know, heading into this re-election, the two top spokespeople, you know, usually you have one voice for the administration. That's right. This one has two. And Kirby has has got a contingent, I think, both in the White House press corps and outside, saying that they really prefer him over her. He's more forthcoming. He seems to be more in command. Uh, he hasn't made the gaffes that she's made. Um, she says she's going to hang around through the election. But apparently, they, Axios reports, it is fraught. With tension. Hmm. A little little thick in there, huh? A little bit of drama at the White House. Uh, We thank you for joining us. Have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. We will see you Monday bright and early at 6. All talk is next.